Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, Zach Twomley here with a short message before we begin this latest episode. This is the second last episode of The Long War before we start something very, very different at the start of 2018. If you weren't aware yet, we're going to be looking at the Second Anglo-Maratha War. (laughs) No, we're not. No, we are not. We are looking at the Korean War. I just wanted to see if you were paying attention. Great. We're looking at... A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tools. Tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Korean War, guys, in more detail than you have ever thought possible before. So I'm really, really looking forward to that, and I hope you guys will join me for a completely different era while we take a break from the late 1600s, because we've been here for nearly three years on and off, and it's it's nice to jump around a little bit. It's nice to jump around. Just like House of Pain said, it's nice to jump around. They didn't say it's nice, they just said jump around. But you get what I'm saying. Thank you guys for listening, and I really appreciate your support, especially coming up to Christmas. I hope you guys are doing well, and I hope you guys do have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. And I... Really, I'm so very fond of all of you, and I really do appreciate the monetary and moral support that you guys have been sending through the last few months. I will have some more news as the year progresses in 2018. Looks like I'm going to be doing some exciting new things in my life and for when diplomacy fails. And we are also, of course, releasing a new podcast, Poland is Not Yet Lost, so keep an eye out for that. It should be dropping in May. This is just a short kind of brief of the news that's going on in the moment with when diplomacy fails Alrighty, guys thanks very much for listening and enjoy the latest episode of the long war yes you may have realized it's a long long one hello and welcome history friends patrons all to episode 15 of the Long War. In 2018, we are taking a break from the Long War and the 1680s, but in this episode and the next episode to come on the Long War, there is still a great deal to get through. As you can see from the length of this episode, it is a very, very involved one, 
And this episode essentially covers everything that happens within the Siege of Vienna. Everything from the disgusting, gory details to the incredible bravery on both sides. So yeah, I thought it made more sense to cram everything into one episode rather than stretch it out or take the mickey by making it longer and all that kind of thing. So I hope you guys will enjoy it. It's a bit intensive, you might need to take a few breaks at certain points, but yes, it's gonna be good. Last time we saw how the different relief armies linked up at the end of August 1683 and how they pushed ever onwards to the top of the Wienerwald, the Vienna Woods, where they got a great panoramic view of the siege and the tent city established by Cairo Mustafa. That was on the 11th of September, and the following day the commanders Charles of Lorraine, Count Waldeck and Jan Sobieski would all ride forward in the name of relieving the siege of Vienna from its terrible nightmare. We established that background in the last episode, so here we're going to deal precisely with what that terrible nightmare would have been like. We're going to work our way through the months of July, August and September from the perspective of the defenders in Vienna, and having explained how and where the relief army had come from, we'll then jump to that incredible story in the second half of the episode. In a sense, this episode here gives us a great conclusion to a whole load of disparate threads in the story. We tie everything together. It all comes full circle, as they say. So I hope you're ready to begin listening to my take on one of the most famous reliefs in history. I will now take you to the 14th of July, 1683, where the defenders of Vienna first appreciated that Kara Mustafa, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire and vested with the powers of the Sultan, had established his glorious tent city right outside of their homes. On the 14th of July, the whole army of the Turks, with an incredible number of horses, wagons, buffaloes and camels, appeared moving towards Vienna, over the hill by St. Mark's Church, their main body marching on the side of the hill, from whence they could not be so well discovered, from the walls of the town. They immediately spread themselves from the bank of the Danube, throughout which circuit they continued encamping themselves till late at night, where they were observed to begin their works before the Emperor's gate, where our men, that were posted upon the counterscarp, fired upon them continually from behind palisades, to hinder the approaches, which they had already begun in such a manner, that we soon found ourselves formally besieged. Johann Peter Falkerin, English subject resident in Vienna, writing in his diary on the 15th of July, 1683. The enemy was finally at the gates. After so many years of ignorance, after so many months of rumour, and so many weeks of panic, the Ottoman army had reached its destination. Kara Mustafa's great and glorious aim was now achieved, but it remained to be seen how the garrison within the city would react. Having enjoyed reinforcement from a series of desperate last-minute sources over the previous days, this garrison of 15,000 men was tasked with holding back the greatest attempt by the Ottomans to seize Vienna in history. Never before had the Turks been so driven, so singularly focused towards acquiring its end goal at Vienna. Never before had the season, the weather, the resources and the plan all been so well executed and established. There had been no tedious slowdown of the Turks in the countless fortresses dotted along the route to Vienna. There had been no great victory as seen 20 years before at St. Gotthard. There had not even been significant foreign interest in the plight of the Holy Roman Empire's capital city. The defenders of Vienna had watched in the days before, as frantic preparations for siege had begun in earnest, that those clouds of smoke began to appear rising from different corners of the realm. Fitful appearances from Charles of Lorraine didn't exactly buoy the garrison with confidence. But by the 14th of July 1683, no single member of that military garrison 
was under any illusions about what was about to occur. Although the response had been far from apathetic, although Karim Mustafa thought very little of the Habsburg capabilities to resist, and although there remained work to be done on the defences, the 15,000 men under Count Starenberg were adamant that they would stand and fight, that they would make the Turk pay for every piece of wall, for every small victory, and if it came to it, for every house or suburb within Vienna itself. They would leave Mustafa not with Vienna, but with a smouldering ruin. It was not to be the site of their triumph, then it would be the site of their triumphant martyrdom. No quarter would be given, and nothing would be spared. This was a fight between mortal foes, between two world systems, between two great competing claims, and between Jesus and Muhammad. In his account of the siege, Andrew Wheatcroft noted that, There was no enemy within, no group willing to compromise. An implacable sense of resistance united the soldiers, the citizens who remained, and many thousands from the countryside who had taken refuge within the city. Waiting was undoubtedly the most painful part of the experience. Those days between when Emperor Leopold left the city on the 7th of July and when the Grand Vizier's tent arrived on the 14th, this was a week of feverish activity for sure, but also of gradually building in patience and drama. Much work was at least needed, which did keep the men occupied. Nobody would be spared. The only way it High townsperson could avoid picking up the spade and helping to dig a deeper moat or to add to the earthen mounds was if he paid someone to dig in his stead. While Lorraine remained on the other side of the Danube, segments of his infantry periodically aided with the garrison's defence, and many stayed behind after requiring permission from Lorraine, who anxiously awaited the arrival either of Ottoman forces or of a relief army. The problem with these Allied reinforcements was that they tended to arrive after following the routes through the difficult swamps and marshlands, where diseases such as the bloody flux were rife. These diseases were then brought into the city, the bloody flux or severe forms of dysentery foremost among them. Dysentery would take its toll on the besieged and the besiegers though. The exemplary style and efficiency which seemed to accompany Karim Mustafa's establishment of the tent city on the 14th of July seemed to suggest that the Ottomans were invulnerable to all the trials of war. By the time of the relief of Vienna two months later, though, warfare had definitively taken its toll on Mustafa's camp, and the kind of order which Ottoman military bureaucrats always prided themselves in would have all but evaporated. The unnerving ability of the Ottomans to surround Vienna and cut it off from the outside world pointed to their extensive analysis of the intelligence available on the city's defences and the surrounding countryside. Every element of the Ottoman army had a role to play, and the heavy cavalry, the Ottoman Sapahis, had already begun to approach the watery eastern flank of Vienna, which opened out onto the Danube. Long since closed up thanks to the impending siege, Allied soldiers had established themselves on what was called Praetor's Island and the fortress of Leopoldstadt, which resulted from the erosion and the force of the Danube River. In two days, the Sapahis chased the Allied cavalry off, seized Leopoldstadt, and began piling up huge mounds of earth from the surrounding areas. From this point, with gun emplacements fixed, the Turks could actually bombard Vienna and lob shells over the walls from a position once believed critically important for the Allies to hold. Starenberg had to console himself with the fact that not all positions could be held in this struggle, but that the most important points, in the end, would be. Such optimism appeared misplaced, though, when Mustafa's tent appeared parallel to the Hofburg Palace. The symbolism aside, the facts were clearly inferred by this act. The Grand Vizier was making plain his intention to establish the main thrust of the attack at this point, where he knew, from the previous study of maps and plans of the region, that the Hofburg and the wall it rested against represented one of the weakest defensive points of the city's walls. Indeed, we saw last time how the different bastions at this point in the walls, the Berg Bastion and the Lobel Bastion, both had been built at different times, and they joined together unevenly, which left gaps in the visibility of the defenders. Ottoman scouts and spies had long since reported these weaknesses to Mustafa over the previous months, and while the Grand Vizier may well have been irritated to denote that the defenders had noticed the weaknesses as well, he may not have been too fussed. The improvements which the garrison had worked on appeared on the surface to be crude and hasty. 
This is because, as we know, most aspects of Vienna's defence were crude and hasty. Yet Mustafa demonstrated his penchant for arrogance when he ordered several unsuccessful and costly assaults on this portion of the defences before setting his tent there for the remainder of the siege. Crude and hasty though the defences had been, the earthen mounds, wooden palisades, fields of interlocking fire, deep moats, covered trenches and high vantage points proved murderously effective in the early stages. This murderous efficiency had been possible because of the last-minute actions by the citizenry, the advice of George Rimpler, and the morale boost provided by Starenberg's defiance. Even as the city was being surrounded, one could hear the continuous hammering of nails, the reinforcement of palisades, and the digging of further trenches. Large chains were brought from the armory and prepared to be used should the attackers break into the city, while the 317 guns that Vienna had, manned by experienced gunners and artillery regiments brought in at the last minute from northern garrisons, provided a strong answer to the Turkish artillery. With the plan of Mustafa plainly apparent by the 18th of July, pressure was taken off the other portions of the city's defences, and sallies would then be launched repeatedly from these areas. After enduring constant casualties once they had arrived, Mustafa began the process of getting trenches dug, and he began to follow a pattern familiar to those who had seen previous sieges. With trenches advancing in a criss-cross pattern, the defenders could not get as accurate a shot off on the attackers, while from these trenches, huge mounds of earth could be built up to rival those of the makeshift earthen walls already in place. From under the cover of these huge mounds, a more insidious tactic would be pushed ever onward by the Turks. The one tactic for which no clear remedy existed, the digging of mines underneath the very defences of Vienna. The adoption and furthering of such tactics made the outer portions of Vienna seem more like something out of the First World War than the 17th century, yet this was standard Ottoman and European practice by the second half of the 1600s. Trenches, strategically plotted with sharp curves and punctuated with city bastions from which point heavy guns could be positioned, these all gave the attacker a kind of fortress of his own, where he could attack from or retreat to should the defender sally forth, which was a favourite tactic. For those that have listened to our Patreon series on Louis' arms and armies, such facts of warfare will be familiar to you, but for those that haven't, try to imagine a honeycomb system of trenches edging ever closer to the first set of palisades. By building up the mounds of earth in front of them and organising a complex series of choke points and staging areas, the Ottomans, much like the armies of Louis XIV, were able to turn what appeared to be an impregnable fortress into just another puzzle to solve. Taking the advantage of sight away from the defender and advancing under the cover of darkness granted the Turk a reprieve from the garrison's murderous sniping and artillery fire. Experienced Ottoman engineers, though preciously few in number and largely thrown away by Mustafa in the weeks to come, did offer invaluable advice over the perceived blind spots of the fortifications and the best means for exposing the central weaknesses of the Vienna defences. Throughout the first week of the siege, and up until the end of July when the Turks began to make some significant headway against the outer defences, Andrew Wheatcroft, our guide for everything that's going on in this era really, described how the outer portions of defences, the mounds of earthen fortifications, accompanied by palisades, appeared less daunting to the attacker than the larger stone ravelines or tall bastions set behind them. Yet it was these earthen mounds that ended up being the unsung heroes of the siege. With their evenly placed wooden stakes and deceptively difficult challenge to the attacker, they turned out to be the most effective of all defences provided by the Viennese. Manning such defences, though, was another issue. The affair looked very much like a stoic and rehearsed battle order for the first week as well, because the same tactics were repeated time and again by the Ottoman shock troops, who largely threw down their muskets and sought to basically rush the palisades in front of them. When they crossed the small portion of no man's land before reaching the bottom of the man-made earthen slope, rank after rank of Habsburg musketmen rose up to fire down at the attacker while he scrambled to overcome the glaringly simple but strikingly effective wooden barrier. However, the impersonal nature of the fighting quickly degenerated as the number of Turks who managed to make it over the palisades were met with sword points, spears and often grenadiers who lobbed their parcels down in front of the attackers and into the trenches, a tactic which the Ottomans had used in previous sieges such as Crete. 
When the Turks were beaten back, the Habsburg cannons could fire on the attackers without risk of hitting their own men. Round shot was common, as were the larger cannonballs that bounced and careened into any man or structure. As the Turks also discovered, cannonballs were significantly deadened in their impact by earthen structures, and so the Turks began to erect several of their own earthen and palisade-type structures to provide additional cover fire and advantage for their attackers. When breaches began to appear in the garrison's palisades, or when zealous Turks managed to scramble over the pointed stakes and meet the garrison at the top of the earthen mounds, more desperate measures began to be employed. The use of large billhooks to grab and ensnare Turks and pull them down into the trench with the garrison on the other side were especially fearful devices. Some of these enemy soldiers were just torn to pieces, beaten or stamped to death by the desperate garrison, while others were seized and brought inside the walls for interrogation before meeting a similarly grisly end. An unwritten rule had it that no prisoners would be taken or quartered given, and as the battles increased in intensity and the most forward of defensive positions became overwhelmed, the savagery only increased to match the desperation. On the 19th of July, Ottoman trenches reached the outer palisade wall, but ten days later there was still no breakthrough. This was when mines began to be implemented on a proper scale, from roughly the 29th of July onwards, yet the means by which they were used was somewhat ineffective and crude, and the exploded mines buried under the earthen mounds merely created large pits that the garrison could then turn to their advantage. After an especially brutal encounter, one garrison commander ordered that all killed Turks be beheaded and their heads placed on the tops of the palisade, so that any time the Turks crossed over those palisades, they'd essentially have to move past the brains of their comrades. The message of savagery was unmistakable, and it set the tone for the rest of the siege. Neither side seemed daunted, but as July turned to August, the constant pressure on the garrison began to take a toll. The desperate defensive measures, effective for the moment at least, could not be kept up forever. On the 5th of August, using their own large earthen mounds, which they were now standing upon to fire at the defenders, the Turks leapt and scrambled over the palisades, using their grenadiers to blast through the garrison's line, even if the palisade was still standing. Reaching the other side of only the first earthen mound on the 7th of August, which the Turks had fought so hard to seize, the next obstacle came quickly into view. Another set of earthen mounds fortified with palisades greeted the Turks, and this one was reinforced with tall, angular, permanent structures perfect for sniping down at the attacker and placing heavy artillery upon. To defeat this formidable line, the Turks would first have to move down into the deep, dry moat ahead before clambering back up to battle against the second row of palisades, and in the portion of time it took to awkwardly run down and scale back up again, horrific casualties were inflicted by the defensive batteries surrounding them. From the 7th of August, then, the Ottomans had officially taken the first rung of defences, but the great challenge still loomed ahead. As the Ottomans sought to devise more effective means to defend themselves against the terrible fire of the garrison's interlocking defences, a series of solutions were organically developed. Vast mounds of earth had been thrown up by the digging of the trench system, and these mounds were added on top of the original first line of defence to increase its height and give the Turk a better field of vision over even the stone ravelines themselves, which were connected by the second earthen wall that the Turks now had to tackle. Starenberg watched as the defences became a pockmarked hell, and all of it was unfolding right outside his backyard. Thoroughly racked by this stage with dysentery, Starenberg had to be carried across the different defences while he kept a keen eye on each of the lines. He wore a thick cavalryman's coat to protect his person from shrapnel, and he yelled obscenities at the Turks from his position atop the walls. Constant efforts to plug or reinforce any potential gaps in the defences were always underway, and the garrison had begun to dig their own mines to counteract those of the Turks. Daring and costly sallies were launched over the first and second week of August to bring home to the Turk how determined this garrison was to hold on to its position. In one of the most successful sorties, launched on the left-hand side of the Ottoman's attack structure in mid-August, 
A nightly raid against the enemy destroyed his carefully constructed mines, killed the most qualified of the enemy's sappers, and set a series of fires among the trenches which had to be dealt with, setting the Ottoman advance back by about a fortnight. Yet, as was becoming the pattern by mid-August, any success that the garrison enjoyed was paid for dearly in human lives lost. 100 men died in that sortie, and while the Ottomans could replace most of their men with the huge reserves they had, the 15,000 men inside Vienna were becoming thinned out to half that number by the second half of August. And by now, the underground battle was becoming as important and horrendous as the war above ground. Sappers and miners from both sides sought to destroy one another's tunnels and nerves by preemptively detonating mines which would rupture the other's siege works. It was a time-consuming and dangerous business, but the momentary successes made such efforts worth the risk. On the 15th of August, it was recorded in Vienna that... At about 8 in the evening, we sprang a mine that was carried from the Lobel Bastion to the enemy's works, so that a great many of them were blown up and torn to pieces, we perceiving from the walls several arms and legs in the air mingled with the smoke and rubbish. As the siege wore on, the horrific day-to-day experience of the defenders was matched only by the grim realisation, becoming ever more accepted by the second half of August, that relief was impossible and Vienna would be their grave. Starenberg, it seemed, would have his opportunity to demonstrate his bravery and loyalty to his emperor in this place, by making it the Stalingrad of the Ottoman Empire, minus the heroic last-minute breakout. Considering the fact that the brutality of 1683 was arguably matched only by that siege in 1942-43, the comparison feels accurate. It is difficult to imagine or even portray what life would have been like in Vienna by the third week of August. Certainly food had all but run dry by this point, and the hardened garrison were increasingly coming under the effects of dysentery, for which there could be no cure, as starvation and exhaustion-induced weakness enabled that disease to find its easy victims. The one silver lining for the defenders is that, because they were forced to eat rats by this point, the fearful bubonic plague had far less opportunities to spread. Small mercies indeed, yet by the 40th day of the siege on the 23rd of August, the Turks had unquestionably established themselves in the outer perimeter of the defences. The once defiant first line of earthen wall and palisade defences now resembled an Ottoman platform from which the enemy could launch daring assaults while he continued to undermine the defences by digging deeper and throwing dirt into the moats in order to fill them up and provide easier means of access. The daily grind of the siege would certainly have become unbearable for some. There was simply no escape from the ever-present gunfire and horrific scenes of human desperation and despair. As the raiding parties made less and less progress, and as Lorraine's reports back to the city brought less and less positive news when they came at all, an air of resignation must have set in amongst the defenders, who by now had seen the worst side of humanity every day for over a month. We don't know how many individuals broke down from the impact of this sheer horror on their individual psyche, What we do know is that no question of, or mention of, surrender was even put forward. Yet, just because they occupied the apparently stronger position, the Grand Vizier's camp was no rosier in outlook. Several pashas and figures in the camp had been critical of Mustafa's decision to attack Vienna, and the surprising level of resistance encountered, surprising at least to Karim Mustafa, seemed to vindicate their views. Yet, Mustafa believed that he was winning the battle, and that anything in between the onset of campaign and the resulting victory was immaterial. In a sense, he was correct. The Turks were winning ever so gradually, as the garrison was slowly thinned out from combat or disease, and their attacking tactics wore the defences of the city down. At this point, Count Marsigli, the nobleman from Bologna who had advised Greater defences be provided around the Raba River all those months before, was a prisoner of the Grand Vizier. He had noted in the past how amazed he was by the Ottoman sanitation and medical treatment. The provision of latrines in particular struck him as better organised than the sanitation in most European cities. Yet Marsili's accounts of these advancements in technology gradually disappear after the third or fourth week of grinding siege. The abandonment of old tested procedures and the lax discipline which accompanied it, while Mustafa kept all eyes on the assault, exacerbated the prevalence of disease in the Turkish camp. 
Any wounds almost instantly became infected and gangrenous, while the abundance of flies in the height of summer played havoc with the rations and sanity of the Turkish soldiers. By the end of August, the Turks were reduced to a diet of weak soup and rice, hardly sufficient for a soldier expending as much mental and physical energy as the Turks were by this point. Thus the Turks became more susceptible to disease as the siege wore on. The only difference between them and the garrison was that they had on hand the manpower to make good any such losses, while the garrison of Vienna did not. Mustafa may well have appreciated the importance of keeping his army motivated, but his only concern seemed to have been the maintenance of the siege. He was feared rather than respected, and he was loathed rather than loved. He did not seem to care for the traditional expectations of the soldiery or of the Janissaries, who required their commander to regularly buoy their morale with pep talks and promises of plunder, not to mention the holiness of their cause. On the 25th of August, an ill-advised sortie killed several high-ranking Turks and damaged some of their heavy guns, but achieved little else. In this attack, Starenberg lost over 200 men, numbers he could far from afford to throw away on such a harebrained scheme. The next day, two huge mines were detonated by the Turks, further undermining the integrity of the Ravelines leading up to the final defensive line against the walls of Vienna. The next day, a French cavalry officer led his men on a doomed charge, which cost him his life, but which also killed several Ottoman sappers hard at work. Both sides had come to expect and appreciate the pattern of the siege. As soon as a new mine exploded, the Turks would rush forward to exploit the hole, the defenders would repel them with cost, but some damage would have been done to the defences in the process. Then the defenders were obliged to respond with a sortie of varying sizes, before the retreat back to the defences and the mine was awaited again. As the Ravelines became more precarious and surrounded by the creeping advances of the Turks, efforts were made to push further against the Lobel and Berg Bastion Kirtnell Wall, which was again protected and reinforced by a fresh line of earthen defences and palisades, not to mention the traditional approach trench to slow the advance. As September approached then, the garrison was being pushed ever backwards to their final lines of defence, which would require every last ounce of skilful defiance to hold on to. Since the Berg and Lobel bastions were not in line with one another, with the Lobel positioned further back, it was harder for one side of the defences to be mutually supportive, as normal European fortifications would have dictated. What was more, the crumbling ravelines in alternative structures would not have normally represented a decisive blow, because several would normally have been constructed to take the place of support when one or another one fell. Yet at Vienna, these tall stone platforms, built sometimes several decades apart, were neither well designed to be supportive, nor numerous enough to make the most of the defensive positions available. So it was that when a raveline fell, it marked a significant shift in the fortunes of the defenders, as affairs became more desperate and the attackers came under less direct fire. Within the city in the first days of September, Starenberg knew that the end was drawing near. With the enemy threatening the final bastions on both sides of the wall, as well as the wall itself along the centre, there was little standing in the way of the Ottoman breaches, save a repetition of the original defensive tactics seen on the first outer line. It must have seemed like years ago since the Turks first met and battled with that line of earthen mounds and palisades, yet here again on the first line of defences, the practice was repeated with a desperate tenacity. Running low on manpower, no sorties took place from the end of August, granting the attacker a new security that he took full advantage of. The Turks were certainly wounded, they were scarred and they were much depleted, and it is certainly debatable that if a breach was made, they would have possessed the force necessary to even capture and hold on to Vienna. What was certain was the fact that Starenberg was determined to make them fight through every single street and through every building, again echoing the scene at Stalingrad which would play out roughly 250 years later. They would retreat into the inner reaches of the city and they would turn every building into a death trap, while hulking chains would slow down the enemy as the remaining garrison's cannon was turned in on the city. It was a grim and, it had to be said, deeply depressing plan, 
made all the more overbearing due to the approaching weight of desperation upon the garrison, now reduced to less than 5,000 men of varying capabilities and combat readiness. Citizens had long since been employed to fight and support the garrison, and those that could not fight were tasked with carrying or transporting vital supplies between the different sections of the wall, a long journey considering the fact that some four miles of walls extended around Vienna in 1683. One such courier, a Polish merchant, was actually able to disguise himself as a swarthy Turk without much effort and he made his way to salvation. This man's instructions were fundamentally vital to Starenberg's war effort. He had to locate Charles of Lorraine and his allies and inform him of the desperate nature of the garrison's resolve and the impending loss of Vienna which crept ever forward. Reaching the relief army by the 5th of September, this heaven-sent Polish merchant delivered the message which was received, and this act, this incredibly defiant act, worthy in itself of some kind of film, spurred the unlikely allies of Lorraine and his coalition of different forces onwards. On the 27th of August, the first series of rockets were launched from the Tower of St. Stephen's Cathedral in an effort to entice the relief armies ever onwards. Within Vienna, little to no information was even known about where the relief army was or who composed it, yet this exercise would be repeated every day until, on the 7th of September, a few days after that Polish merchant successfully passed the message on to the Allies, a rocket was fired in response. The message was clear. We are on the way. But could they make it in time? On the 3rd of September, a well-organised defence of the final raveline before the Third Wall cost the Turks a great deal of men. While at nightfall, the defenders retreated and set fire to everything they could get their hands on. The smoke choked proceedings and only added to the chaos in the first week of September. Yet, with this raveline gone, it was certain that the Turks would now push ever onwards. With no additional outer defences to protect them and with the Turks encouraged to push harder at this pivotal time, the garrison after the 3rd of September couldn't be expected to last longer than a fortnight at best. Yet it was also on the 3rd of September at 2pm that the most devastating mine yet exploded under the Berg Bastion, carving a hole 30 feet wide and throwing up all manner of defensive materials with its force. The guard had been changing at that precise moment, as the plan of the Ottomans had been to attack when the guard changed to maximise casualties. However, a small mercy for the garrison was that the explosion proved devastating to the infrastructure, but not so impactful on the soldiers themselves. When the dust cleared then, twice as many soldiers as normal were prepared on the top of this, the final wall of Vienna, for the assault which was to come. Like something out of the Battle of the Somme then, the great explosion signified that the big, massive attack was about to begin. The greatest explosion yet was followed by the most ferocious and sustained attack yet seen by the defenders. Turks, janissaries and auxiliaries of every kind surged forward over loose earth and wood to push through the defences, meeting along the way the desperate fire of the garrison who raised the alarm in other sections of the city. Reinforcements rushed forward, not merely with weapons and shot, but with sandbags and wooden beams to repair the breach. From his position, Starnberg could see that the situation was grave. The mine had cleaved out a great deal of earthen and wooden defences, but it had also destroyed a portion of the Berg Bastion's actual stone wall. This was the first solid breach in the defences of the actual city of Vienna itself, and it may have come as a shock to him, but Starnberg did not falter at the sight of this breakthrough. He ordered men on to plug the gaps, and he maintained a withering intensity of fire on the excited attackers, who seemed assured that this was their great chance to invade the infidel city at last. In the desperation, cannons were lugged up to the area and loaded with canister shot to fire into the approaching Turks, while grenades, boiling water and even heavy stones were lobbed in a blood-soaked battle for the breach. With the entire platform of the bastion eventually filled with men all fighting the Turks, everyone was packed so tightly together along this section of the wall that small explosions wrought horrific injuries on those present. One soldier recalled that, While I was holding a soldier by his scarf, his head was knocked off by a cannonball. Blood and brains were spattered onto my nose and right into my mouth, which was open because of the day's great heat. 
This incident caused me great suffering afterwards, above all violent palpitations and vomiting. For over two hours, the battle raged with a distinct ferocity. Starenberg eventually sallied forth into the gap himself to rouse his men. Meanwhile, mortars and shells dropped onto the area as the Ottoman artillery let loose regardless of friendly fire. Hundreds of men were killed in the garrison. By the end of the battle, the traumatised survivors were left to fill in the gaps as the mangled corpses of friend and foe alike remained to taunt their sanity. Stakes were hammered into the ground in front of the breach and sandbags positioned to create new choke points while wooden beams covered the rest. It was a hasty, crude set of measures, but hasty and crude was now all Starenberg could count on. He only possessed some 3,500 men, with no more soldiers in reserve, and the extent of Vienna's walls to man. This evident breach in Vienna's defences would require still more troops to defend, and it was clear that a watershed moment in the siege had arrived. If the garrison's position was now unsustainable, it would soon become untenable, as the rudimentary measures would not hold forever. Three days later, a simultaneous mining attack commenced as the undisturbed Turks digging below ground had a frenzy in their mining and sapping activities. There was nothing to stop the Turks destroying the entire city with mines or tunnelling right into the city under its walls if given enough time. Constantly on edge for news of such schemes, Starenberg was jarred into yet more desperate action with this aforementioned mine attack on the 6th of September which saw three mines all but obliterate the section of wall running between the Berg and Lobel Bastions. With the Lobel Bastions artillery destroyed in the previous days, the garrison leapt into action with a delirious sense of sacrificial duty, standing soldier to soldier and joined by a cabal of different civilians in their defence. Swords, spears, billhooks, pitchforks and scythes were all brought to bear, as if further anticipating the First World War, Primitive barbed wire was also brought up and put across the breach in a series of patterns. The process would at least ensnare the attacker as he moved through the now gaping hole in the defences, but the plainly defeated garrison was rapidly running out of measures like these. Recalling the mines on the 6th of September, one resident of Vienna noted, What we feared came to pass. About one in the afternoon, the enemy sprang several mines which made such a breach that a great part of the bastion, at least 20 feet thick being of brick and stone, was quite thrown down from the top to the very bottom, leaving a gap of 36 feet broad and our men quite uncovered, whereupon the enemy made a furious assault but retired by reason of the difficulty of the passage occasioned by the heaps and pieces of the ruins that lay in their way. The assault on the 6th of September lasted until nightfall, whereupon the garrison took up tools and began repairing the positions yet again. It was clear that a third and perhaps final assault was to come on this position. Every defensive measure was thus taken. Admitting that it had indeed come to this, Starenberg ordered the heavy chains symbolically slung across the streets of Vienna. The houses, the churches, the hospitals and markets were all reinforced and made defensible with wooden planks and timbers and stockpiles of firearms, bombs and melee weapons were also brought into such buildings. The old stone structure of the Hofburg would serve as a fallback line from the breach in the wall. Once retreating to that point, the Turks would be made to fight for every bit of ground in the city, while the sharp turns and high-rise buildings would choke off any possibility of a quick and easy assault. With his 3,000 or so military men remaining, Starenberg prepared for the final chapter in this doomed struggle. On the 7th of September, buoyed by news of the rockets returned by some distant relief army, Starenberg urged his men to remember their promises to God and themselves, and that, whether they were too late or not, all would know of their sacrifice and struggle inside the city walls. A mine detonated at 2pm the next day on the 8th of September, just in front the Lobel Bastion. The entire region in front of Vienna's southern flank resembled an apocalypse. The ground had been utterly destroyed from the last two months, and the countryside was barely recognisable. The apparently endless supply of manpower forever troubled Starenberg. He did not know if Kara Mustafa was 
nearing the end of his reserves or just getting started, but either way, he was determined to go down fighting with his city and bury himself beneath its rubble if it was necessary. The 8th of September brought the celebration of the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, an event celebrated not merely in the sombre surroundings of St. Stephen's Cathedral, with the several holes forced through it by the Ottoman artillery, but also a few miles to the northwest, on the other side of the Vienna Wood, where the relief army gathered to begin its climb up the daunting tangle of hills and forest, from which the final relief of the city of Vienna could be launched. With so much on the line, this relief army began their climb ever upwards. On the 9th of September, several more mines exploded in front of the defenders' positions. By this time it seemed impossible that anyone could live within this forsaken city, just as it seemed impossible that any soldier could continue on. Starenberg expected the next attack to come at any moment, and with it, the final phase of the ordeal would begin. He and his men would not be expected to hold the walls any longer. It would make far more sense, once the defences were again breached, to concentrate their efforts on the interior of the city and force the enemy to come to them. That this next phase of the plan was, above all, a defeat, must have struck Starenberg as especially bitter, considering all that he and his men had been through. Yet for all that, he was confident that wherever this relief army was, they would be able to achieve some measure of revenge against the Turk. With this in mind, Starenberg hoped to destroy all feasibly defensible positions within Vienna, so that once the Turks seized it, they would find it immensely difficult to hold it against a counter-siege. Yet all this would surely have been wishful thinking. Neither Starenberg nor his remaining officers knew much about the size or disposition of the relief army or of the remaining powers of the Grand Vizier's force. All they knew was that they were trapped here, inside this once glittering capital of the Hasberg family, and that, after two months of brave and noble resistance, their time on earth was soon to come to an end. The 10th of September was spent in sombre and desperate prayer, as all attempted to make peace with their god, as hell itself seemed to build up outside their shrinking sanctuary. The final preparations were solemnly made, as Starenberg ensured that the different points of the city were ready for the storm that was to come. The soldiers that remained, somehow still, psychologically in one piece, never mind physically, affirmed their intentions to fight to the end. This could now come at any moment. The following morning, on the 11th of September 1683, calls were heard from the tower top of St. Stephen's Cathedral. Preparing for the end, Starnberg sought to employ the grimly rehearsed measures which had been discussed. Yet, the call, it didn't signify a breach or an enemy's triumph. It signified hope. In the distant woods atop the hills of the Weinerwald, columns of men and horses had been spotted. Over the course of the 11th of September, gunfire could be heard and battle cries distinctly made out. The observers in St. Stephen's Tower may have convinced themselves that they could hear German, or that they could see high-born imperial officers and allies from other lands in the hills, but they would certainly have to double-take. Starenberg could hardly bring himself to believe the news. As the 11th of September progressed, it became clear that the numbers atop the hills to the west were filling with great numbers of men. These were Germans. They had to be. Simultaneously, as if answering their pleas, the Ottoman focus seemed to sag. Was Kara Mustafa beginning to pay attention to the men on the hill as well? By the afternoon of the 11th, it was soon clear. The Grand Vizier himself, with his ostentatious insignia and household guard, had galloped towards the foot of the hills, and preparations seemed to be hastily undertaken by the Turks to fortify positions of the approaches to the city from the west. There could be no mistaking it. The lessening bombardment of the city accompanied the slow rise in spirits among Starnberg's battered garrison. The situation was not quite hopeless. All was not quite yet lost. Over the course of the 11th of September, signals were made and received with the men atop the Weinerwald, as soldiers armed with telescopes atop the Viennese hills encouraged their comrades to look into the smouldering ruin of a settlement that once had been known as Vienna. From his point, the relief army could see the waving observers atop the tower of St. Stephen's Cathedral. Once destined to serve as Karamustafa's victory mosque, it now served to connect the besieged to the reliever. 
the beleaguered to the free. As the trenches before Vienna were observed to empty, with men being pulled to man new defensive lines to the west to combat the relieving force, a great buzzing of activity could be seen in Karim Mustafa's camp. Reinforcements of his own had been brought up from Hungary, while the Tartars were definitively established on the Grand Vizier's eastern flank, having previously been permitted to run roughshod over the entirety of Austria. As the sun set on the 11th of September, the pressure on Vienna was maintained, yet, as they peered through the gaps in their somehow still-standing city, as they conferred joyfully with their somehow still-alive comrades, there was a feeling that the siege of Vienna had indeed entered a new phase. Somehow, this garrison of savagely tenacious, necessarily vicious and utterly relentless men had managed to withstand the greatest test of their lives. The siege of Vienna might have been over, but the battle for Vienna was only just beginning. Well, history friends, after that mammoth episode, I will bid you a good day. Since this was such an important moment in our narrative, we'd really been building towards this since episode one, I think it was only right to take an extended look at it, so I hope you all don't mind. In the next episode, we'll properly conclude our story with the probably more famous aspect of this story, the the coalition army rushing to the relief of the garrison of Vienna. It's a great story, and I've really enjoyed covering this part of it already. But I would love to hear your thoughts. Did you enjoy this? Was this episode good? Was the wait worth it? I'd love to know, so do let me know through the usual channels. Until then, though, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to a Whopper examination of the two months of hell experienced by Vienna's garrison in the summer of 1683. A huge thanks for listening to this massive installment, history friends. This has been The Long War, episode 15, and I will see you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.